attention to the very idea of the concept of coming as the outline would have it, the coming of Messiah, Mashiach, the Messiah, the coming of the anointed one. And we, we began to talk about the idea of the coming of Messiah uh, under point uh, one, and then we opened up under point two. I want to reiterate that, and then I want to drill down into the language, lo, I come, and I want to explain it for us. Hopefully we can get... Um, sort of a, a working knowledge of that phrasing, lo, I come. I want us to have that. So we're going to be walking through a number of passages of Scripture. And I'm going to call your attention to the way that language is used so that we can be a, a bit more sensible about the idea of the coming of the Lord in a broader and a more nuanced way. And I hope it'll be a benefit to you as a we got about three weeks to go, three more studies, rather. We have this Sunday's message, which we'll be presenting out of Micah chapter 5, the text we looked at last week. We'll unpack that for Sunday's exhortation. We got today, we got Friday, then we have um, Tuesday of next week. So today, Friday, Tuesday, is study time around the idea of the coming of Messiah. So we have three more studies to drill down into this concept. If we don't get through our outline, I'll just encourage you to um, to, to look at the headings and then the subpoints and inculcate them for yourselves. Really, really think them through. Um, so let's let's see if the Lord will sanctify our thoughts and our mind. Did you take my water from me? Oh, come on, come on, girl. girl you, I saw. I saw good. That's all good. Thank you. Bless you, bless you, girl. Mm -hmm. Father, we are coming to you again in your mercy and your kindness to us. Glad to be in a safe place. Glad to be among the people of God. Glad to be Coram Deo in your presence. And we are certain that that is the case because first and foremost, you are everywhere present as your servant David has reminded us, as the prophet has laid out both Jeremiah and Isaiah, they both told us you feel heaven and earth. You sit on the circuit of the universe. And because that is the case, we know that you are present everywhere and in every condition and circumstance we may be in. May that be for us a comfort that there is no time or situation, Lord, where you don't know about what we where we are or what we're going through. Help us to remember that so that we will speedily call upon you in the time of trouble so that you might hear us answer our prayers and we might <clears throat> glorify you for it. As we look into the text now and, and uh, try to understand more fully why it's important for us to know and be assured that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we might know him that is true and that we are in him that is true. Even your eternal son, who is the true and living God as well, and this is eternal life, help us to know you more fully. Help us to acquaint ourselves with you and be at peace. We are praying this for us, our families, for sure, Lord, our loved ones, and even our adversaries that all knees, every knee, everywhere would bow before King Jesus in hope of the glory that is to come. So we're coming to you on the grounds of your son's shed blood, our purging, our cleansing, our sanctification, our washing. We need you to wash us with the hyssop of the blood of Christ by your spirit. Cleanse our conscience from dead works, O oh God. Uh, relieve our conscience from the weaknesses and fallacies and the distractions and things that hindered us all today uh, and uh, grant us access to draw nigh to you as you draw near to us also on the grounds of your son's righteousness which is our standing immutable unchangeable irrevocable Christ in us and we in Christ and father you in us and we in you this we are asking in Jesus name open our eyes for Christ's sake amen all right look with me again at Psalm 40 verse 7 and I just want us to cultivate the thought. Psalm 40, verse 7, Then said I, then said I, Lo, 
I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. The line doesn't end. It doesn't end. There's a comma there and it goes on to say, I delight to do thy will. Oh my God. Yes, your law is within my heart. That is a total package right there. And so there's a lot there. The the emerging thought that I want us to take up and unpack and, and, and find the benefits from is the fact that we have identified the one that's speaking here, right? We know the voice. Who is the voice? Jesus. Who is Jesus talking to? His father. And that is so extremely important because as the subject, Jesus is the one talking. As the object, the father is the one to whom he is talking. Agreed? When you understand that, now we are recognizing a huge benefit, and that benefit is this. You and I, because of the Bible and because of the paraclete, are able to ear hustle in on a conversation between the divine persons. That's what's important here. We are able to listen in on a conversation between the divine persons. We get to ear hustle in on a conversation between the divine persons. I might even be able to say because we are children of God, we get to ear hustle in on a conversation between our daddy and our big brother. Because we're children of God, we get to ear hustle in on a conversation between our daddy and our big brother. The Bible's explicit that he is our bigger brother. And there's a reason for it. He assumed our nature. He is the prototokon. He is the firstborn. He is the ultimate quintessential son of God. And the rest of us are heirs and joint heirs with him. So what I want you to be thinking about here is it's possible that at this time, in this moment, only a few people around the world are presently ear hustling in on a conversation between the father and the son between our daddy and his son. But you and I are right now, are we not? And that's the blessing of the codification of God's word. It is permanently present with us as we learned in Psalm 130. Uh, Forever, O Lord, thy word, 119, 130. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled. It's established in the heavens and we have it codified. So we get to think through this idea of the conversation between the father and the son. And it's really a conversation of the son to the father. So the son is talking to the father. Now there's a lot of cues that you and I want to get from the son talking to the father because the son is talking to the father about an agreement that they both made. And this is where the idea of the coming of Messiah comes in. We're dealing with the doctrine of Christology, right? It's the study of who? Christ, study of Messiah. And we are dealing with it in terms of his what? His coming, his coming. Two uh, terms, one in the Old Testament, the Hebrew term, boti, boti. You can write that down if you want to, or you can just remember it like boutique for you women. Uh, uh, Boti, boti. And I want to talk about that. In the New Testament, there are two prominent uh, Hebrew verbs for his coming. Ir komai, ir komai. I've talked about it before. And then parousia. Parousia. I'll talk about that a little bit as we go as well. Those are the two dominant expressions. Now, there's a difference between boti in the Hebrew and the way in which that term is really dominantly expressed and the ones in the New Testament, parousia and erkomai. Um, erkomai is a, a verb that basically describes the inanimate act, the non-personal interest act of his coming. Meaning if he says, I am coming, like we read in the book of Revelation, uh, in Revelation chapter two, verse five, if you will keep up with me, sis, uh, you guys know when Jesus was talking to the seven churches, he warned them several times, I will come and I will do this. If you don't repent, I will come. Notice what he says. Remember, therefore, from which you are fallen and do what? Repent and do the first works. This is the church at Ephesus or else I will what? Right. That's the construction that is dominant in the New Testament. It's our Greek term, erkomai, and it's a verb that means I am on my way. 
So that, that is a category in itself that is a, a warning when he's talking to his people as the sovereign Lord and he's wanting them to change their ways. He's telling them, now I'm telling you what's wrong and I'm telling you to fix it because I'm actually on my way. And what that means is providentially he's going to deal with it if we don't respond properly. Does that make some sense? I'm on my way. And if you really are here physically, but are not here mentally, it's like when you were growing up and you got out of line and your mama said, I just called your daddy. He said he's on his way. Yeah. <laughs> just letting you know, okay? Just kind of letting you know. If, if it didn't come home, that's what Jesus was saying to the seven churches because five of them were acting up. And he was saying, listen, I'm going to fix it if you don't. I'm on my way. That's what the term erkomai means. Now, parousia, parousia is the more prominent one that we use when it comes to like the Lord's physical coming, his ultimate coming on the last day, uh, as he would state in Matthew chapter 24. When you see the son of man coming in the clouds of glory. This one here has to do with a much more majestic entrance into the scenario. The parousia is generally taught about our Lord's second coming. We do believe that he's coming again, do we not? And we take that up from the book of Acts, Acts chapter one, where the disciples were talking with Jesus and he let them know to tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And while he was talking to them, the clouds took him up into the heavens out of their sight. You guys remember that language, right? Acts chapter one. And the angel said, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus whom you have seen taken away will in the same manner come back again to you on the clouds of glory. That has a lot of rich implications, but parousia literally means his physical presence, his physical presence. That's what the idea para means near. Usi means essence. Usia means essence. When he comes again, his essence as the divine God man, his physical presence will be with us. Right now, he's in heaven. He's with us as God, but he's in heaven in our human nature. And the idea of Jesus coming a second time has to infer his incarnational state, right? Because in his eternal state, in his divine nature, he's already here. Remember what he told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, I am what? With you, even to the end of the world. So there's a sense in which Jesus is with us in his divine nature. And there's a sense in which he is not with us in his human nature because he's at the right hand of God. Does that make sense? So the parousia is when he will show up physically and be with us. Para always means next to. Usia always means present. So when you think about the doctrine of the parousia, think about the next to, near, and present Lord. He's not next to and near yet. But there's a time when he's coming, and according to Revelation chapter 1, every eye shall see him. So we're talking the incarnation. Does that make some sense, ladies and gentlemen? Now, I want to get back to the Hebrew concept because I want to take you on a journey around Bo-ti. Bo-ti. When he says in Psalm 40, verse 7, in the opening line, Then said I, lo, look, listen, behold, I come. Do you see that? I come in the volume of the book. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the idea of I, T, come, bow. In the Hebrew, it goes from right to left. In English, we go from left to right. So I, what? Come. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Boti in the Hebrew goes from right to left. Ours goes from right, uh, left to right, right to left. And so when you read the phrase Boti, think of T, bow. I, what? Come. Now, this term bow actually literally means to bring, to bring. And I want to drill down into this with us. I want us to meditate. You with me? Literally, what he is saying is, look, I am bringing myself to you. I am bringing myself to you. 
Look, I am bringing myself to you. The idea of the bold T is to present something. When you come, you are presenting something. When you are not present, then you cannot present because you are not present. But when you come, you are presenting something. And what I want to assert under the concept of lo, I come, is the idea that when Jesus comes, he comes for two reasons. One is he comes because, and that's the cause section, because this here is the prior grounds. And remember, what did we learn? What's the reason or cause for which he is coming? He is sent. He is sent. Who sent him? The Father. I want you to get that. So there's no, there's nothing that ever comes or becomes or presents itself that doesn't have a because behind it. Everything has a cause. Why have you come, Jesus? Because my Father sent me. Does that make sense? So the verbal act is that Christ came or as I want us to meditate on Christ, what brings and he's bringing something when he comes, he, he comes because he sent of the father. Now we ask the question, what is the purpose? The purpose is the reason or outcome or objective or aim for his coming. He's not coming for no reason. So when you and I say the Lord is coming, we get to ask on what grounds is he coming? The because and then what for? Wouldn't you say that if somebody said, hey, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming over. Why are you coming over? And what for? And here's what I want to drill down into for the next 45 minutes. Can I do that? What are you going to present? Because coming is always about presentation. What are you going to present? Every time you and I come, we are presenting something. Now, here's the law. And I want to walk through Genesis 1 through Genesis 7 and show you the presentation of Christ through the 10 generations from Adam to Noah, which is going to walk through about eight verses. You'll begin to see what I'm saying. So when you and I are talking about the coming of the Lord, we are talking about him coming because and him coming with a what? That's right. So when we talk about him coming, here's what you must know about the Lord when he's coming. He never comes empty handed. So now this is important because if you and I know Torah the way we know Torah, Torah gave a rule to every man that when he came before the presence of the Lord, Three times a year, he was never to come empty handed. Watch this now, because this is what I want us to walk through for every one of us. When we come to God, we are to come to God presenting something to him. So we come on a cause and we come with a what? Purpose. And what God says is never come without a purpose. Never come to me without a purpose, because if you do, you're not really coming. See, biblically, bo T means that I am bringing something, even if all I'm bringing is myself. Did that make some sense? Right. Now you are hearing the echoes of Romans 12, verse 1. We beseech you by the mercies of God to what? Present what? Present what? All right. Don't, don't say it like you don't believe it because that is the essence of what God wants. When you and I come before him, we present ourselves. That, that's how you actually come before God. You don't come before God without yourself. So he uses the language in Romans 12, chapter 1 and 2, present your bodies. Your body is yourself and present it with a sacrificial mindset that constitutes a worship motif. Does that not mean that? So you and I are now coming before God with ourselves and you can actually this. This is a great parousia principle because parousia means to come alongside of and be present. As I told you, when the Lord comes, he will be alongside of us and present. It literally means to be present. 
So when you come into the classroom, you are present. If you are in a class, but you can't make it that day, you have to admit that you are what? Absent. Right, you can be on Zoom and everything, and you may be legitimately in spirit on Zoom in the class, but physically you cannot do what? Present yourself. And so this is the idea I want us to grapple with because if we understand the doctrine of Jesus' coming, we're going to understand the doctrine of Jesus' presentation. And the doctrine of the presentation of Christ has an S on the end, presentations. There are many presentations of Christ. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I am coming in many what? Presentations. So now walk with me through the scriptures if I can help you understand what I mean. We're going to just use this dominant Hebrew term, boti, which is used somewhere over 2,500 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. And here is how it is expressed. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. I want you to pick up on the continuity of the construction of this language. And let's deal with what I am calling your attention to. I am calling your attention to the uh, grounds of this act of coming and then the purpose or design or objective of this act of coming. So there are three parts to it, right? It's a motive that uh, compels you to do it, the very act of doing it, and then the purpose for which it's done. Getting ready to show you the collaboration between the father and the son, okay? Here it is. The first time our Hebrew expression is used is in Genesis 2.19. Now listen to what it says. And out of the ground, the Lord God, this is Jehovah, Jehovah Elohim, formed every beast of the field. So what is God doing in this, this, um, this here is a narrative, so it's already done, but he is what he's called, he's rehearsing it. God created everything. So we're in creation mode with, with God, right? He is the creator. Didn't we learn last week that the father creates everything by who? By, by, by the son. So who's here in this text? The son. Because if it's be a creative dynamic, Jesus has to be in it, right? He's not absent. Notice what it says. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and did what? And did what? That's our Hebrew term, boti. Brought. To bring. Didn't I say to bring? So uh, past tense is brought. So not only did he, coming from God, do the bringing, he brought, right? But he also brought two. Who did he bring it to? Adam. Who did he bring it to? His son. His son. Why is he bringing something to his son? To educate his son on how his son is to respond to him. So I want you to capture this. Are you ready? There's nothing that God tells you to do that he hasn't already done first. That's an axiomatic principle. So if God will tell you and I to worship him, he himself is worshiping himself. Now he's worthy of it, right? He's worthy of it. If God will tell you and I to love our neighbor as ourselves, he has already done that. If God will tell us to live a certain kind of way, God has already demonstrated that ethic. So what he will do is catechize us by example, how we should do even as he does. Now, Adam is his son. Adam is his brand new son. Adam has to learn from his father how to act. And the one fundamental thing that Adam is learning is the act of giving. The act of giving. When you and I come, we are to come what? Bringing something. God help you to hear what I'm saying. God help you to hear what I'm saying. All right, so now notice what he says. And he brought them unto Adam in order to see what he would do what? Now, now that's our purpose, isn't it? So God is the one that brought the animals. If the animals could talk, would they not say, God has sent us to you, Adam? Right, so that's the, that's the passive voice and the active voice. 
If he says, if the animals were to say, we came, lo, I come, lo, we come, they would be speaking in the first person active. If they say, we have been sent, now they are speaking in the passive voice that God sent us, right? What Adam knows is they have been brought into his presence and they have been brought into his presence with a purpose. And that purpose is for Adam to exercise the authority of defining those animals according to their nature. Y'all got that? So notice that the first act in the relationship between God and his son is God giving his son something. Y'all got that? God giving his son something. Now the next verse I want you to see in the same light because I want us to walk this through is in Genesis chapter um, chapter Genesis chapter 2 verse 22 now watch the construction here notice what it says here and we're going to carry this through all the way to to Noah um, start back at verse uh, 20 I want to walk this through and Adam gave names to all the cattle to all the fowls of the air every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper meet for him got a dilemma right this is a narration of the text. Adam didn't say this. The narrator said it. Okay, we could have a whole long conversation about this. But verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon his son and he slept. You guys see that? We call that a paradigmatic foreshadowing of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Because sleep is a metaphor for what? Death. And Jesus had to die on the cross and the father was the one that put him there in order to provide a salvation for his people, for his bride, who would come from his side in the same way when the centurion pierced his side and out came blood and water. So Christ gave his life for the church. So now notice the language. I want you to capture it. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept and he took one of the ribs of Adam, closed up the flesh thereof. Great operation. It was flawless. Not a pain, not a stain, anything. Notice what it says next. Uh, here it is, verse 22. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he a what? In the Hebrew, it means to build. It means to use the wisdom of the uh, wise men in the book of Deuteronomy, where God poured out wisdom upon men to actually be artificers in the building of the complex edifice called the temple. And here God built him a what? Woman, so this you must know. Uh, if I can use a little bit of a professoral expression here, you must know that women are complicated creatures, profoundly complicated creatures. You actually need the wisdom of God to know them. Why, Pastor? Because you and I were asleep when they were made. Okay, it's important for you to know. Right, so, so now when we woke up, when he wakes up, God presents her to him. So that's our same word, and brought her to him. You guys see that? And brought her. What does that mean? God never presents without presenting something. He doesn't present without purpose. He doesn't present without purpose. Now we're dealing with a theological mystery, teleological mystery, meaning a progressive revelation as to what God is doing in terms of bestowing upon his son dignity and authority and rule. Remember, he created Adam. Now he's having uh, taken everything that he created, the animal world, and gave them to Adam. So Adam now is being enlarged, is he not? his relationship with God, his responsibilities, the blessings. And now Adam is also re receiving an additional helper, his wife, because he has, she has to help him with the management of God's institution. So you see the father is the one giving. Is the father the one giving? Is the father the one giving? Praise God from what? From whom all blessings flow. You see the theology? Right, and then think about this. Is the son receiving? Is he receiving? Are we sons and daughters of God? Do we not also receive? And are we not also to reciprocate with God? This is what you're about to learn, okay? So I want us to understand the concept of the coming of the Lord, why he comes and what the purpose of his coming is, okay? So the next time we see this expression used in the Genesis narrative jumps all the way over to chapter 4. We could talk about why, I won't, but the, it appears that in God's wisdom, when he gave Adam the proper authority to name the animals and then gave him a wife 
to help him. In the Genesis uh, 3, uh, 2 text, Adam has all he needs to manage our world. Okay? Adam and Eve fall into sin, and God, he, 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 he manages that. And then they continue doing what the purpose for which a man and woman is brought together, and that is procreation. Now we're going back to what is called the mandate. Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, right? Let them have dominion. Let them subdue. Let them, let them fill the earth, right? So that's a procreation mandate. So now we're at the procreation mandate because God said you're going to have children. And notice what it says here in Genesis chapter um, 4, verse 3. Notice what it says. Genesis 4, 3. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain did what? Brought of the fruit of the ground and offering where? Now, why did Cain do that? Because he's a son. And his son, the son of his father, Adam, Adam taught him what his father taught him. To give, to present. Does that make some sense? Now, I want you to capture this. What is the overarching motif? What is the grand narrative that is being ex exemplified in this giving here? It's worship. It's worship. Cain is bringing an offering to the Lord in the context of what? Worship. Right. It's important for you to know. He gives Adam and Eve the world to run, but they have to give back to God what God gives to them. Isn't that the pattern in our life as well? The Lord gives unto us and we give back unto him. Our parents are to teach us that everything we have, God gave to us. And that we give a portion back to God in order to let the creation know we have received every spiritual blessing from God. And so we are now reciprocating what God does. Is it important for the son to represent the father? You see how rich Christocentric theology we're building here? We're building a composite of Jesus, are we not? Is Jesus the one presenting? Yes. Lo, I come. And so now the father has taught Adam. The father now has taught Adam and Eve. The parents are now teaching the children. And Cain is bringing, he's presenting, is he not? He's presenting. Now look at our next verse, verse four. And Abel, he also did what? That's our term, boti. He came. He came. So, like, you can't bring something if you don't also come. But I'm just really helping you to understand the idea of coming is coming with something. We are never coming by ourselves to God. We are coming with something. Coming home, is that coming home? Even if you're coming to God, is merely you're coming to God by Christ. To come to God by Christ is to come to God with Christ, right? Because the model ultimately here is to bring unto the Father what the Father has given unto us in order that we might be sons of God. So we bring unto the Father the sacrifice pattern that he himself gave to us in the sacrifice pattern. It's important for you to capture. In, in fact, isn't Psalm 40 verse 7 really intimating that when Jesus says, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Isn't he coming to give him a, himself a sacrifice to his daddy? Is that not what he's doing? Of course he is. So you see the pattern in the Old Testament? This is what he means by, lo, I come in the volume of the book too. We see Jesus here, do we not? We see a pattern of Christ's sacrificial offering back to his father. Abel also brought the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his what? All right, so I want you to capture the concept offering and notice that when you and I present before God, it's equivalent to offering before God. When we present before God, we are offering before God. When we are doing a presentation, and that's everything, anytime we're coming anywhere, we are presentating, we are presenting, we are manifesting, we are there and we are there with a purpose. Hopefully we have been sent, right? As the Father has sent me, what? So send I you. And if we go because we have an assignment, we are bringing something, are we not? And what we are bringing is according to the purpose and design of that assignment. 
It's important for you and I to know that God won't send you on an assignment where he doesn't have you purposed and gifted to bring something. You're not, you're not ever on an assignment where God doesn't have you to be his instrument of giving something. Raise your hand if you know what I'm saying is true. Right. Don't get me wrong. It may be a situation where God sends you somewhere so someone else can present to you. And now you're receiving from them that presentation that God used from in them to give to you. Okay, so that's where the word sin comes in. He may send you. He sent for Peter to go to Cornelius, remember? And Cornelius sent servants to go get Peter. And God sends angels to come get us. So sending and going is two sides of the same coin. They're not the same, but they reciprocate. Y'all follow what I'm getting at? So every day when you and I get up and leave the house, you and I have to ask the question, am I going to present or is God sending someone to me? Am I going to give or am I going to receive every day is designed for that model and i want us to walk through now the uh the noah's family okay which i call the second adam family and and you guys know that because he's the 10th generation from who adam okay from adam to noah is 10 generations now and with noah the world's gonna end Y'all keeping up with me. And so what we're dealing with in the life of Noah in Genesis chapter six and seven is the paradigm or model of the end of the age. Because the world is coming under judgment and God must destroy it for its sins. Y'all keeping up with me? So the backdrop, the backstory to the 10th generation from Adam is that uh, Noah is going to be under assignment with God while God is about to bring the world to the end. And we want to see the tension of those two categories as we work it, work it through. So I'm going to start at a very interesting text, and I want the, the theology to emerge. You guys have been around long enough. You should be able to get this now, okay? So this is Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And I want you to keep the model in your head that we're dealing with, okay? The model is presenting and giving something, coming, presenting, and giving. Y'all got that? I want, you to, I want you to keep that model in your head because it's going to show up in a very unusual way now, okay? It's going to show up in an unusual way now, which is going to set the premise and the context for God's reaction, Okay, so listen to what it says. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. We already know where that came from, right? That came from Abel and Seth, right? And Enoch and all of the Enoch and all of them. That the sons of God, verse two. Now, these are two categories of people, are they not? The daughters of men implying no religious affiliation with God and the sons of God. Y'all got that? Dun, 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 dun. We are now back in the drama of the Genesis 3 context. Because in Genesis 3, you do have sons of God, Adam and Eve, but now you got a serpent there. In every garden, there's a, there's a serpent. Remember that. Here, the narrative is about to give us a tension of drama that says, be careful to listen well. Here it is. And the sons of God did what? Stop right there. And the sons of God did what? Did Eve see? Did the sons of God essentially see the same thing that Eve saw? Yes. They saw a forbidden principle that they now want to actually exceed the boundaries and engage in. See what I'm getting at? All right, so the narrative, these are called parallelisms in the narrative by which even though the storylines are slightly different, the underlying principles are the same. Boundaries are now being broken, and when you break the hedges, what's going to happen? You're going to be bitten by the what? Right, so here we go. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were what? In the uh, uh, Hebrew uh, construction there, that word is translated good, good, good. It was the proposition that the serpent gave of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to Eve, that it was a tree good for food. When God said, don't, don't eat of that tree. So in the eyes of these sons of God, these women are good. 
That means that they have overridden the warning about being unequally yoked. Y'all got that, right? So stay with me because I just want you to see the battle. And therefore, they took them wives of all which they what? See that last clause, that last construction? That is a powerful act of rebellion against God. Y'all see it? Right. Don't, don't, don't get all, you know, weird and bizarre about that. Because that's you and me by nature. Apart from grace. Y'all keeping up? So I want us to drill down. I just want you to see the lust of the eye. The lust of the flesh. And then the act. Every man is drawn away. James chapter 113, right? Of his own lust, right? And notice what it says. And they took them wives of all they chose. So let me do just a bit of theology because I got 20 minutes. Would you, can I do this? I want you to understand that they didn't have clubs in their hand and just chase women down in the woods and hit them upside the head and drag them in a cave. It's not what happened. I know that's what you get from evolution with Neanderthal man and pro-magnum man and all that. No, 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 no. They took them by a legitimate process of marital negotiation with their parents. Did y'all get what I just stated? They went to the parents of the women and said, can we have them? And the parents of the women said, how much? Because every woman had to have a dowry price. So when they came to the parents of these daughters, they came bringing something. Is that right? Because that's what you come with. Remember, you can't present empty-handed because if you present empty-handed, you're going to go away empty-handed. They did not go away empty-handed. They went presenting and they left with a bride. Am I making some sense? All right, let's keep going because even this at the gospel level is still a paradigm of Christ in the church. Right? Christ came to take us. Does that make sense? And we carry the radical totality of the fulfillment of this transgression in relationship to him who is holy and harmless and undefiled. If this is not a model of the gospel, I don't know what is. The sinless one comes to marry the sinful one. Did that make some sense? Right. So here is the mystery of redemption for you and I. Right. Christ pays a dowry price. He presents himself. He presents the price and he takes us. All right. So notice what it goes on to say. <clears throat> and they took them of all the wives, which they what? Which they what? Which they what? Which means lawfully and legally God didn't choose these wives. They chose them. This is called free will. Just want you to know. This is how you know free will. Every time you sin, that's called free will. Free will is the evidence that we do what we want to do instead of what God wants to do. Am I telling the truth? Of course I am. So now I want you to watch what's about to happen in the next verse. I could be here a long time, but I just want you to capture it. Because what are we learning? We're learning that the idea of coming, I come, lo, I come, is really presenting ourselves and presenting ourselves with something to do, something to give purposely, right? And we're coming, are presenting because we're being sent, right? So notice what it says in verse 3. Uh, let me see here. Nope, I don't want us to be at verse 3. I want us to look at verse 4 now. I, I better stay here. You know why I want to stay here? Is I want you to see God's commentary on what happened. The Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with who? For that he is also what? Yet his day shall be 120 years. God immediately says, okay, if I let these knucklehead rebellious sons of God keep doing this, and they have an average lifespan of 800 to 900 years, the whole earth is going to be filled with hybrids. So I'm going to cut it short. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I do want to get done, but I want you to hear what I'm saying. Whenever God cuts short sin, it's an act of love. Whenever God cuts short sin, it's an act of love. Did that make some sense? Of course it does. Of course it does. Every day that we sin, we heap more judgment on ourselves. 
And every day that we continue sinning, we heap more hazard on everything around us. If I live to be a hundred year old sinner, that's a hundred years of sin that has all kinds of desperate seeds that can fall in bad ground and hurt other people. Therefore, when God cuts our life down, he's acting in mercy of his larger purpose for everything around. That makes sense, right? It's really important for you and I to know it's sometimes it's mercy to cut off wickedness, even in our own lives. And this is why I've told you that sometimes when we go amiss seriously, I don't care how young you are, God will take you out. You're, you're done because your witness is not in consistency with his plan. Like, see, so when he has purchased you and redeemed you, he has a purpose for you here. And when you stop living according to his purpose, you endanger the longevity of your mission. See what I'm getting at? And, and here's the other thing that we have to keep in mind. God is glorified in our death as he is in our life. So true. So do you know a lot of times when we are messing up and God says, okay, there, this is a sin unto death. And I tell you, don't pray for it because I'm taking him home. I'm taking her home. He turns that malevolent behavior into a kind of antibiotic that serves the larger social construct of the people of God. Did that make some sense? It becomes an antibody because we learn from our dear brother, our dear sister, our dear family that it does not pay to disobey God in the context of his mercy in calling us to live every day for his glory. Okay, it's important for you to know that. So they're going to they only get 120 years and this is a cumulative 120 years for the whole of creation. Now we get to look at the uh, extended commentary. Here it is. There were giants in those days. <clears throat> in the earth in those days and also after that after that when the sons of god those are the same one in verse one y'all got it watch this when the sons of god did what when the sons of god did what presented themselves that's our word boti y'all keeping up with me all right let's get ready to go into the rabbit hole because you're getting ready to learn something theologically because they set themselves up have they not they are sons of god that means they are male species are they not they have acted in the fundamental expectation of a, ma a, matri uh, <clears throat> a matrimonial uh, covenantal act. They have gotten them wives, have they not? Now, have they not fulfilled Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 2, 17? God put man into a deep sleep, took a rib from him, built a woman, and brought the woman to himself. Have they not entered into that, that motif? Of course, because remember the mandate is, let us make man, male and female in our image. Let them proliferate. Let them fill the earth. So they're operating out of the mechanism of pro, pro, uh, proliferation. Is that, are they not? It's important for you to get that because what I want to help you understand is even though our motive is often wrong, we are still fulfilling paradigms of God's mandate when we have children. Does that make some sense? Right. Because, see, he could have ended it right there. He gave us 120 years, which means, according to uh, verse 3, guess what God was doing with the sons of God? Striving with them. In the Hebrew, that means to referee. In the New Testament, that means the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction on the mind for the choices that you make. But he said, I will not continue to do that. So God referees with us in our conscience, in our mind, when we behave in wrong ways only so long before he brings a decree of judgment. It's making sense, right? So here, notice what the text says. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Construction? Lo, I come. Lo, I come. Who's coming? The sons of God. Where are they coming? Into their wives. Broaden your periphery. Raise your hand if you guys are keeping up with me. Because now, while we are talking the fundamentals of sexual conjugation, we are also talking the fundamentals of presenting. 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 This is how powerful that act is. We are presenting. So here comes the male. 
And he's presenting because he has a female who happens to be his. And so now he is coming. And what is he bringing? Seed. Seed. Am I making sense? Right. The profound act of proliferation in the context of the mystery of the union between the man and the woman. You see what I'm getting at? Right. So that profound act of the mystery of the conjugal union between the man and the woman is an offering that comes with something. It is not empty handed. And so the outcome of that offering, the fruit of that offering was the proliferation of human beings who are walking in rebellion against God, for which God says, okay, only 20 years. Because if I let these kind of harvests continue, then the whole earth will be filled with the hybrid of apostate Christians in relationship with secular women. This is not a gender thing. This here is a covenant violation principle. Y'all got that? And this is an act of what we would call uh, an aberrant worship. It's a false worship. It's a disobedient worship. A, an appropriate worship would be what? Equally yoked. Am I making sense? With the hope that mom and dad will raise that child up in a way in which that child would be a son or a daughter of God. Y'all keeping up with me. This is the importance of, look, I am coming. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. Why? What is the book that we're in right now, ladies and gentlemen? The book of what? Genesis. What is Genesis? Seed. That's what the word means. It's the doctrine of the seed, is it not? The perpetuation of the seed from Adam to Abel to Enoch, Methuselah, to Noah, to uh, Japheth, Shem, and Ham, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way up to the coming of who? Who is the seed? So what is he saying when he says, lo, I come in the volume of the book? He's coming through all these patterns I'm showing you. Right now, what we're dealing with is a struggle of the seed progression because the enemy has entered in and warped the minds of the very sons of God who should have been planting seed in good soil. Now, am I making some sense? All right, so it's important for you to capture it. Go with me to chapter 7. I got a few more minutes with you on this because while we could drill down into this a whole lot more, all I want to do is move to the next level of God's resolution to an attack of the enemy against the sons of God when the enemy hijacked the minds of the sons of God and moved them over into the enemy's camp. That's what you saw. These guys changed uniforms and traded teams. And God says, okay, got to put an end to that. So when he looked out over the totality of humanity, guess what he says? I see... Actually, I want us to see the text. This is important. Look at it in chapter 6, verse 13. Chapter 6, verse 13. This will help us. Notice what it says. And God said unto Noah, because you remember what it says in chapter uh, 6, verse 9, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God had already planned on destroying the earth, did he not? But as God always does before he destroys the earth, he tells his people, does he not? So Noah is the one prophet servant of God. He's the 10th generation, by the way. So Noah would represent us. And God is coming to us, letting us know that we found grace in his eyes. That means we're saved by grace, not by works. But I got a plan and I'm getting ready to wipe this thing out. And I need you to actually do your part before I end things. Y'all keeping up with me in the drama of redemption? So the world's coming to an end, but Noah has an assignment before it happens. So here's what God says to him. You ready? I want you to capture this because this is another low I come motif that's about to emerge. Here it is. He says, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh is come. That's Boti. Boti. Do you see it? The end of all flesh is come. So let me unpack that for you. You know what that means? That means God sees from the first man to the last man and everyone in between. 
Every human being has now presented themselves before God in the eternal omniscience of God. Did that come home? In God's eternal omniscience, he sees all of humanity. Do you see that? Notice what he just said. The end of all flesh has come before me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, isn't that the message of scripture? Right? It is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the what? Right? Isn't the Bible very clear that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world? Didn't he say in Revelation chapter 21, very clearly, um, yeah, no, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and following very clearly that I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whom the whole heavens and earth fled away and there stood before God the dead, small and great. Y'all remember that? So the idea here is really interesting because what God is saying is by virtue of the act that those sons of God committed in chapter six, verse four, God sees a whole society of human beings standing before him on their way to hell. Right. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more so the hearts of the sons of men? What does that mean? God knows our hearts. What does that mean? He knows the outcome. What does that mean? God knows that the wages of sin is what? God knows what it's going to look like in the end. And so here God has a very teleological final view of this kind of behavior. And he says, no, 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 I got to cut this short. Y'all keeping up with me? I must cut it short because if not, all flesh will come before me in the indictment that I gave in the earlier verse. Every imagination of man was only evil continually and God repented that he made him that way. You see what I'm getting at? So it's important now for us to notice that. Notice what it says. All flesh is what? It has presented itself. You know what that means? We are all going to ultimately present ourselves before the Lord on the last day. We are all coming and everybody's going to be judged according to their actions. Do you see it? All right. So it's important for you and I to capture this idea because now God is going to do something about it. Think about this. Think about it. We have a few minutes and I'm going to walk you through it. God sees a catastrophic event in his mind. And now he says he has the ability to do something about it. He is. Now, a lot of people are going to die, but not everybody because he's setting up another plan. So here's how this works. Look with me now over in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 7, starting at verse 9. 7. Genesis 7, 7. This is God talking to Noah. All right, so here it is. And Noah, I'm sorry, I should maybe look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. Look at Genesis 6, 18. I want to see if this gives me my narrative. Here it is. This is what God said to Noah. But with you, I will establish my covenant and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons with their wives. You guys see that? Look at verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall you do what? Shall you do what? Shall they come? So God is calling Noah into a plan. And Noah is going to bring, present animals. These animals are coming to Noah. And we know how they're coming. God's going to send them. And they're going to walk right into the ark with Noah and his three sons and their three wives and his wife into the ark. Y'all got that? So God is getting ready to set up a seed inside the ark that will be preserved in the judgment. Can y'all see that picture? So this is a seed, the seed of humanity, the seed of animals. And this is the language that's being described in verse 19. Uh, and then look again at verse 20. Of fowls of every kind, of cattle of every kind, of creeping things of the earth of every kind, two of every kind shall do what? Shall come. They shall present themselves to you, Noah. Why? Because Noah is a son, just like Adam is a son. And as the father presented to Adam all the animals, now he's about to present to Noah all the animals. Because Noah already has a what? A wife. He already has sons and daughters, so he doesn't need them. All they need now are the livestock 
and animals for a new creation paradigm. Did that come home? All right, so let's watch this a little further in chapter 7. We need to get done. We got a few, few minutes. Chapter 7, here's what God says. We'll start at verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. So Noah did what? And his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Look with me over at verse 9. Uh, and yeah, we could we could walk through verse eight because I'm only going to verse 13. We're almost done. Look at verse eight. So of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creeps upon the earth went in. Look at verse nine. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male, the female, as God had what? So now I want you to capture the visual. Noah and his family are in the ark. The ark, the scales that we have, are higher than the ceiling in terms of them being two levels. There's a two-leveled arc. The arc is about as wide as our room, a little bit wider, but it's two football fields long. Y'all got that? So I want to give you a scale just so you and I can put our feet in Noah and his wife and his sons and his, his, his daughter-in-law's shoes. Can you do that? So here, you and I are inside the ark because God has actually shown you what his plans were. You cooperated with God for a hundred years in building the ark. You and your family. Now the judgment is coming. The rain is coming down. And God says to you, uh, to Noah and his family, come into the ark. They came into the ark, right? Now, think about all these animals. They just started walking into the ark. Why? Because God told them to. They all walked in and the text said they came to Noah in the same way that God brought the animals to Adam, the same way he brought Adam's wife to him. God is now bringing to Noah because of the grace of God, because of his collaboration with the gospel, because of him building an ark to protect the seed. The seed now has a place to go to escape the judgment. And you see God acting in sovereignty to bring about everything that is needed to bring the provision to pass. A few more verses, we're done. Look at verse 8. We're going to go through verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 10. Now we're at 9. Verse 10, we're going to go through uh, three more verses. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Verse 11. I just want to follow this out. No verse 11? Oh, there we go. Now in the 600 year in the life of Noah, in the second month, 17th day of the month, that means something. The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So this is what, now everything is kicking. The ground is breaking up, the waters are flooding, the heavens are open, the rain is descending massively, profusely. It's torrent everywhere. Verse 12. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, verse 13. In the selfsame day entered Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and his three wives and his sons with them into the ark. So it gives this narrative of God calling Noah and his sons in, because that's what the text said, and God called them in. And the text tells us in the same narrative that when he, God called the men, he shut the door on them. So he opened the door and he called Noah and his family in and they came in. And then he called the animals in unto Noah and they came in. And when every animal came in, God did what? Shut the door. Lo, I come in the volume of the book is written of me to do thy will. Now, you and I have had a broad sort of overview of Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis 7 of the 10 nations, have we not? 10, 10 generations. What was the lesson here? It's the idea of Christ coming. It's the idea of humanity having the gospel preached to them. It's the idea of men abandoning the gospel. It's the idea of God bringing judgment on humanity. But it's the idea of God's elect in their obedience to the gospel, building the ark that allows sinners to come in before God closes the door on the day of judgment. Does that make some sense? It would be very much like what's happening right now. 
Like any, you and I can be anywhere. But right now we're under the hearing of God's word. Is, is, does that make some sense? Right. And, 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 and you know, what's really interesting, and we're going to stop now for prayer. What's really interesting is any one of us that really knows the preciousness of God calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Any one of us that knows the preciousness of that season when we were living like hell. Any one of us, any one of us knew that it was just that singular voice of the grace of God that was hunting us down in the midst of the darkness in that same Noah-like scenario where storms were all around us and God drew us to himself in the proclamation of the gospel. He presented Christ to us and we presented ourselves to him a living sacrifice, and we found ourselves in the ark, which is Christ, because lo, I come in the volume of the book is written of him. Amen, amen.